Hello, and welcome to PRISM. PRISM is a design-oriented podcast hosted by me, Dan Hardin. Like a glass prism that reveals the color hidden inside white light, this podcast will reveal the inside story behind innovation, especially the people that make it happen. My aim is to uncover each guest's unique point of view, their insights, their methods, or their own secret motivator, perhaps, that fuels their creative genius. Hi, everyone. This is Dan Hardin. We are starting a new thing at our PRISM podcast, and we're calling it Office Hours. Office Hours is an open forum where I field questions from our listeners. These can be questions about industrial design, business, technology, the creative process, or current topics within the greater design community. You can submit your questions at whipsaw.com slash prismofficehours. I look forward to hearing from you, and thanks again for listening. This next piece is answering a question from Kinsley. Hi, I'm Kinsley. If there was a project you've done that you could go back and redesign, what project would it be and why? Thanks, Kinsley, for that question. You know, I interpret that question in two ways. One, if I could go back and redesign something because it could be better or something needed fixing, or two, if I could go back and redesign something because it was a fabulous product category and I just wanted to take another run at it. For the first, uh, going back to fix something, you know, I don't have too many of these examples because by the time you go through these often very long product development processes, you have a lot of chances to get it right. And, you know, it's your job to make sure that it is right. I mean, it's it's always important that you strive for the best design possible. Go for design nirvana with every single job. But yes, sometimes something gets in the way. Um, it could be, you know, it could be like a disingenuous marketing requirement. We hear that sometimes from clients where we're like, what? You know, that do people really want that? It might be a, a cost factor, you just having to stay so low in cost with your solution that it kind of limits you. Sometimes there's a manufacturing limitation or even client politics can sometimes force compromises to your design. And then when you, when you add up all these compromises along this typical product development path, if you're not careful, yeah, your design can get watered down to where, well, maybe you you feel like, I wish I had a chance to redo it. You never want to compromise on your critical design elements, but sometimes conflicting concerns do win out and you end up with less perfection than what you had had envisioned. Maybe one example of that was a project we did for Cisco Systems. We had designed their their commercial or enterprise uh, telepresence line, which allows people in conference room to feel like they're very much in the same room with the people you're talking to at the other side of your table uh, by placing these large televisions. So Cisco had the concept of putting these in your home and using your own television for these. And they called it the Cisco Yumi. So we went through this big process, lots of research, lots of development, lots of design and engineering to produce Yumi. But by the time it, it made it to the market, it, it the cost factor wasn't there for the end user. They were asking a high subscription rate for it. And the marketing campaign was weak. Here we had this beautiful design that we worked so hard on. And it it just failed on the market because people couldn't afford it. And so it just it's kind of a slap in the face to your design team when something like that happens because it, it's well, it's, it was out of our control. 
you know, could there have been something we could have helped on in regards to, you know, maybe a better marketing strategy or could we have influenced their, their marketing team a little bit more? Maybe, I don't know, but yeah, there's a little bit of regret there. As far as the second part of the question, what if I could go back and redesign something because it was a blast the first time around? Yeah, there are many of those, or, or maybe not many, because I'm always really intrigued by what we're doing now and in the near future. So to go back and redesign something, it's not really how I think to begin with. Um, the reasons to go back and redesign something could be that um, something has changed. It could be that you changed as a designer and you have a new outlook on your subject matter. The technology has evolved to open up a new opportunity, or maybe the end user's needs have evolved in some way that you had not or could not have foreseen. The first example of something I designed and my team worked on that I'd like to go back and redesign maybe would be the Eton emergency field radio line. These Eton field radios were emergency products that helped during the case of, say, you know, a flood, an earthquake, a tornado, and they had NOAA band radio, which gave alerts, and they also had cranks on them, crank dynamos, so you can actually power the radio with that or even power your phone uh, if, if it ran down. But, you know, when I look at them today, they seem kind of big and clunky, uh, but perhaps, you know, the biggest change for me and the reason I'd like to go revisit it is we've all evolved in the last 10 years since we designed these. Our, our understanding of the science of climate change has evolved. We're much more knowledgeable about it. The technology has changed, has changed quite a bit, um, which would allow us to be a lot less boxy and heavy. And um, in addition, there are a lot of apps I think that could really help during the case of an emergency. And I think these could just be really slick products um, that could help with these these greater um, climate concerns. I don't know what that is yet, but yeah, that's, that's why I say it could be interesting. I guess another example for this uh, category would be going back and redesigning Dell's Precision uh, line of PCs. They're very popular. We designed those about Oh my gosh, that was also about 10 years ago. No, maybe eight years ago. They're very popular. And, uh, but you know, when I look at them, they're, they're still, they've dated well, but tower computers are not quite as popular. And I think we would have just a, a different take on it, a different attitude about how we would design it. I think we would be looking for an even more sleek solution. And um, I don't know, I just, sense that there could be some opportunity there. You know, uh, to conclude, I think the most important thing to remember is that in product design, you really need to get it right in the first place. There's just a lot on the line because your creation is getting mass produced, sometimes in the millions of units. And with that comes a lot of responsibility, environmental responsibility, business responsibility, and even a responsibility to yourself for creating excellence, you should always strive for the best solution possible. And when you have that as a guiding work principle, you just don't have any regrets. Okay, this is the next question from Jared. Howdy, Dan, from the Deep South. This is Jared Wyndham, an Associate Professor of Industrial Design at Auburn University. 
I've spent an unknown amount of time uh, generating two-dimensional images using MidJourney, the artificial intelligence text-to-image uh, application. I'm wondering if you see what role this might have in industrial design, research, and development, and maybe what role future iterations, potentially 3D, might have uh, as a disruptive technology in, in what we do. Thanks. Thanks, Jared. The term disruptive is overused and often doesn't apply, but it sure does for this topic because AI will be hugely disruptive to our field of design. And to be honest, it excites me and scares me at the same time. So let me attempt to unpack this meaty question. So artificial design intelligence, it, it is gradually entering the field of industrial design, and we're calling it generative design, where ADI quickly generates multiple concept options based on somewhat raw data and human input about the solution criteria. But it's still kind of primitive. It can crank out many random options, but choosing the, the least offensive option, in my opinion, certainly does not a design process make. Unlike digital and graphic design, like your text-to-image AI example, Jared, where AI is integrated within a common software platform, product hardware design is really different. How? Well, I suppose first computers... Uh, certainly surpass humans in their ability to process tons of data simultaneously and instantaneously. And certain projects benefit from all that data, such as interface design that needs to be automatically changeable to accommodate shifting user needs, or when products in a system improve on their own because they cross-reference data with other products in the system, otherwise known as machine learning. And where computers are vastly inferior to humans is when there is little data to work with. Uh, but that's how many design problems actually start. The three-dimensional aspects of a product and its relationship to its user and its environment present exponential challenges for AI, mostly because it can't perceive the dynamic user interaction nuances within the physical world in which products reside. ADI for industrial design is kind of like self-driving cars, I guess you could say. There are, there are a lot of unpredictable usage factors and conditions that, that can cause a design wreck. But perhaps most importantly, the design process, it's, it's really hard, to, the design process that we use as humans, it's hard to replicate using ADI partly because it lacks embodied cognition, which reasons that a, a living creature's physical presence has bearing on how it thinks, and that the mind is not only connected to the body, but that the body influences the mind. Embodied cognition is what happens when we design products and experiences. We let the physical world of movement, interaction, and perception deeply inform our mental creative process. When you're pondering and thinking, you're also in the design process, you know, you're also touching, sketching, 
making and, and doing all simultaneously. It's all kind of an automated, intuitive process. For ADI to ever really work well for ID, it will have to learn to mimic this extraordinary connection between mind and body. Ideally, ADI software would replicate what our brains go through during that design process. The unprompted bursts of inspiration, unrelenting curiosity that just drives you forward, illogical combinations of which I always love and I'm surprised by. Causal inference is also important in design when you're really creatively exploring. And these rapid wind-fail-wind cycles or boundless, boundless wonder that you have that drives you forward to do even better or to find something you've never seen before. And then, and then finally, like the sheer joy of discovery. These are the human brain proficiencies that allow humans to innovate like, like we do. Of course, these creative drivers are always fueled by character, ego, individuality, and your own life experiences. So how will ADI ever be able to think this way? I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, maybe ADI software will eventually overcome these obstacles. And my hope is that it will make products more efficient, functional, and ecological when it does. I'm looking forward to, to how ADI will someday express true design intelligence by showing aesthetic sensitivity and maybe even brilliance. If this does happen, design is a practice, you can count on it, will be forever changed. But I don't think it will replace designers because design is, to me, a lot about mining the soul, and I doubt computers will ever be able to attain that. I think it will probably augment the design process and we'll come to think of ADI as another tool like a very advanced CAD tool or a 3D printer. In any case, it's it's an exciting future and it's one to uh, look forward to, albeit with a little bit of trepidation. Thank you for the question, Jared. Okay, this next question is for Gladys. Hi, my name is Gladys. I'm from Topeka, Kansas. I work as a political field organizer for a campaign. So when I'm talking to folks about the upcoming election, one of the most important factors and issues motivating them to vote is the ongoing climate crisis. So I was wondering what sustainability measure and design people should take. Good question, Gladys. As sustainability is forefront of my mind, as with many designers, and it seems like it's on the mind of more voters too, which is great. Meaningful solutions to climate change are deeply infrastructural and require everyone to commit and work together as one. Unfortunately, working as one is not exactly our political landscape nowadays. Everyone should be doing whatever they can within their own specialty, including designers, um, which and design by nature is about solving problems and creating positive change. So we should be the ones that are like jumping out um, in front of this particular problem and doing what we can. You know, as designers, we're likely not going to change the construct of our consumption-focused capitalist society anytime soon. Designers can, 
however, influence how people feel about their products by building in sustainability values and making it making it obvious. I think there are two parts to this. The first are the more obvious external things that we can do to make products more responsible. For example, using using less material or reducing manufacturing energy um, and making products recyclable, of course. You should be doing this already as a designer. Uh, many companies do. Um, and thanks to technology, we will be able to come closer to achieving these goals on a much larger scale because things are getting smaller and more efficient all the time. That's one of the beauties of technology. Designers just need to keep the pressure on the technologists and engineers to continue this reductionist trend. And we do this by making sure that less being more is still a most desirable trait to the consumers. You have to make sure that sleek, slim, minimal stuff remains cool. And you can can beautify simplicity to make it more attractive. Um, this, this, by the way, presents an economic stimulus too, which is often the only way to get the big corporations to do the right thing. The second part of the climate and sustainability solution is much harder because it's internal to what users and their societies believe about material wealth and conservation. The biggest sustainability problem by far is the sheer quantity of things that humans make and the experiences that we feel like we must have, the consumption and the desires around each of those. And and these conditions are only getting worse. So developing a global positive attitude about conservation is the key. Conservation, that's like an old-fashioned word, right? But conservation is the key. To make and consume less is opposed to capitalism, but that's what we have to do in the long run. We have to accept that no economic growth or even negative growth is okay. We all seek peace of mind and fulfillment on some level, but that does not have to mean more stuff. Is it possible for designers to help change attitudes about conservation? I would I would say yes, because design at its heart is a communication tool that should be expressing quality of experience, not just quantity of experience. And although marketers may disagree, timeless, high-quality, high-value design is the most sustainable in the long run. I think it's even important to retool our prosperity model now because capitalism as an economic construct is waning. The environment is being destroyed for the sake of wealth and greed is is practically a religion. I mean, consumerism has gone beyond an economic order that encourages acquisition of more goods. It it has become our modern-day culture. I mean, I'm seeing people lust for the latest thing and then get bored after using it a few times and ends up in, in your top drawer or your bottom drawer. Product consumption is often so fleeting that it, it reminds me of how people gobble up TikTok content. Consumerism consists of too much stuff that offers too little substance, and our economic machine just keeps churning it out. It's simply not sustainable unless we expand our prosperity model to include ecological and humanistic sensibilities and always design for it. 
One key to affect this positive change is to make the benefits of a wider prosperity model and a sustainability vision directly applicable and relevant to the, to the corporations that make this stuff. Otherwise, there is no buy-in. Designers must evangelize the notion that gain doesn't just mean increased profit by selling more of these cool products that we're designing. Gain should also be measured as increased responsibility to our planet. And I really do hope the world wakes up soon. We have to wake up soon to view prosperity and sustainability like two sides of a coin. Ultimately, I suspect we'll realize that downscaling production and consumption for the sake of happiness and the planet simply must be done in order to survive. Thanks for the question, Gladys. Okay, this is the next question. This is from Cutter. Hi, I'm Cutter. Uh, I'm from Colorado. And um, I was just wondering if you had to choose one project from your portfolio to represent your entire body of work, um, which would you choose? And what was your design process like for that? Oh boy, Cutter, that is a hard question. (laughs) Of all of the products that we've designed, you know, over, uh, over a thousand products that, that is like saying, which is your favorite baby? (laughs) You know, you pour your heart and soul into each one of these projects and there are certain aspects to some versus others that make them, make them more enjoyable, I guess, and make, make them more favorite. I think for me, the ones that are my favorites are those where there was a difficult challenge to solve. Um, We had a great, team effort and we we had good chemistry with the client that means a lot when you've got a client that really is championing championing their own their own product and they, and they give you the the respect and the freedom as a designer to do good work just allowing us to do really good work matters so okay what if i got it down to a subgroup maybe not one that would not be fair to our clients or or to us i think okay how about four I'll go with the Adiri baby bottle, the Google product line, the tonal strength trainer, and the Scrolla lounge chair. And I'll tell you why. So, um, and these are chronological. Yeah, those were chronological. Um, Adiri. Okay, so that's the Adiri natural nurser. It's a, a baby bottle that's that looks like you would want a baby bottle to look like. And I don't mean me. I mean a baby. Um it's a very natural breast-like form. And we were able to rethink the problem really from the ground up by literally turning it upside down. So you fill it from the bottom, not the top, like most other baby bottles that have been designed for the last 100 years. So the key was to figure out how to manufacture something like that, where you could create a, a soft dome of warm milk while also allowing it to breathe properly because you need to equalize the pressure inside the bottle as the baby ingests the milk. It just ended up being a, a wonderful project because, well, the, the result was really cool um, as a design solution. It was very complete, right? So good form, good function. And most importantly, that it got out of the way. It got out of this critical moment between mother or father and the baby. So it wasn't a product impediment between these two critical users, one providing the care, one receiving it. 
And so therefore the product kind of receded into the experience. I love that about the Adiri product. Um, it was also successful. Um, and the client team was just absolutely wonderful to work with. I guess one of my favorite parts was working with, with nursing babies because they couldn't, they couldn't tell you, they couldn't verbalize to you what they liked or didn't like. One baby just threw one of the prototypes at me and hit me in the forehead. And it was the proverbial knock on the head, like, okay, I guess she didn't like that. So it was really neat. You had to, you know, really use your observational skills as a designer to, to innovate. So that was a deary. Uh, the Google product line is comprised of uh, a lot of different products we've designed over the years for them. The Nest drop cam camera line, the Chromecast, uh, the OnHub uh, Home Hub, uh, Google Wi-Fi, even the Google Trekker. You know, the Dropcam camera reinvented how we feel about cameras monitoring your home. It was a, it was just a cute, friendly little multi-purpose kind of device that you could put anywhere because it had these three axes of motion. Chromecast, you know, ironically, there's a design that you'd stick behind the television. And I remember Google saying, are you sure you want your design behind the television? And it was it was our intent to really let that software in the television come forward. That was really what people wanted is, is a new streaming style um, and, and a new method of getting content on their television. The OnHub, we introduced a lot of natural materials like bamboo. And then even on early work on, the, um, on other products, we introduced a lot of textiles. So that introduced this whole natural look and feel. Um, then the Trekker was, it was a, kind of a bizarre scientific kind of project. It's this backpack worn mapping device. It would take photographs and navigational contours of any space anywhere in the world. Typically that kind of content that goes into Google Earth is coming from automobiles with cameras on the top. But, you know, think about how much of the planet doesn't have roads. So the Google Trekker solved that problem. So when you go to Google Earth, a lot of that content is coming from Trekker now. Tonal was probably the most complete project I've ever worked on or the team has because, you know, it started with research, human factors, you know, complete industrial design, mechanical engineering, user interface, Every design problem was wrapped up into one solution that hangs on the wall. It's a strength training system that uses an electronic motor as a form of resistance. So there isn't weight in there that you're pulling against. And it allows you to have workouts ranging from lat pull downs to, to uh, uh, you know, all different types of crunching, bench pressing, curls, squats, you can do everything with a tonal strength trainer and you get stronger faster because it has machine learning. So it's prompting you along the way. It's encouraging you and you have a whole community of other tonal users in the background that's actually working with you. So, you know, that uh, again, one of the recipes for, for making a product kind of rise to the top is when you have great synergy with your client. In this case, you know, tonal's, whole management team, their engineering team, project managers, 
uh, it's just a great company to work with. We just so thoroughly enjoyed the whole process. And uh, we're, you know, super thrilled with how people have gotten healthier through it as a result. Finally, as a recent project, Scrolla is a lounge chair. I, you know, I've been a designer for a while and I hadn't really worked on furniture before. Certainly not much. I did a little bit when I was at Frog Design, but not much. And so I sat down and I thought, you know, if I'm going to design a piece of furniture, what should it be? And I thought, you know, it, it has to be the quintessential design problem. That is a lounge chair. I've been looking at lounge chairs and thinking about them for a long time. You know, I worked when I was working with George Nelson, of course, he designed a lot of really cool pieces of furniture when he was at Herman Miller working with Charles Eames. So I realized that, that a lot of lounge chairs had mm, issues. Um, they were too expensive. They were too complex, meaning that they might have had a, they might have a really beautiful form and a, a good expression. But then if you look underneath them, there's this, crazy contraption to hold it or allow it to swivel. Um, so there's there's often compromises in these lounge chairs. Um, they're often heavy and large as well. So I set out to design a, a chair that was lightweight, that had a unique way of putting it together because a lot of chairs have been ripped off. And I wanted to be able to protect it with a utility patent and a design patent, of course. Um, I wanted to use all wood because... Um, I guess, I don't know, I've, I've been working so much with technology and I just kind of wanted to get away from it, to be honest. I don't want any fancy tech. I don't want any apps to sit in my chair. So I wanted to just use all wood, all hardwoods, and just create something that's that's unique and simple at the same time um, that has a, a sensibility to it in how it's put together, but also... It had to be beautiful and comfortable. I mean, it had to be beautiful and comfortable. <laughs> this is this is something that's harder to do than you think. Um, so anyway, that was um, a pretty personal kind of process. When you ask about like what was the design process, I mean, it was pretty much me sketching for a couple of months. You know, maybe maybe three to six months. I was not in a hurry. Didn't have a client for this. And it was just about, well, just having fun and expressing myself. So in that booklet of sketches, there are hundreds of chairs in there. And um, you'll be seeing more in the future. Um, and then, of course, from sketches, you you have to jump out into the real world. So, you know, looking at lots of human factors data, checking best practices on lounge chairs, looking at the heights and the angles and the backrests and so forth looking at different construction methods um, and just experimenting and building models and prototypes. That was next. Um, then finding a group that was local to the Silicon Valley that, that could actually go from drawings, uh, CAD drawings to a real product in a manner that, that um, was a, a unique manufacturing process. So I needed to find a group of people that could take this rather unique way of, of putting layers of epoxied plywood into a vacuum bag to create the form of the scroll chair. 
And uh, then we did, you know, uh, we, we committed to making the first of the Scrolla like right out of the gate as a perfect prototype instead of um, an experimental hack together one. And it was a, a pretty good guess. The first one that came off of the tool was was actually remarkably close to the way it is now. I had to tweak a few angles, but otherwise it's pretty much there. And uh, and that was the process. I mean, it, you know, without a client, it was just a matter of uh, cutting to the chase and just getting to a design solution rather quickly. And I found the whole process to be immensely gratifying because of it. Thank you, Cutter, for the question. Thank you for listening to Prism. Follow us on whipsaw.com or your favorite streaming platform. And we'll be back with more thought-provoking episodes soon. Prism is hosted by Dan Harden, principal designer and CEO of Whipsaw, produced by Sarah Lears. Mix and sound design by Eric Buell. Thank you.